Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Marissa Renee Lee. She's an author, advocate, speaker, and entrepreneur whose writing has appeared in Vogue, The Atlantic, Glamour, and so many other outlets. She is a former appointee of the Obama White House, the CEO of a social impact consulting firm, and the founder of The Pink Agenda, which raises money for breast cancer care, research, and awareness. With a long history of caretaking and grief work, Marissa focuses on methods for healing and transformation after loss. So today I am thrilled to finally talk to Marissa about her nationally best-selling first book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss. It's a guide through the pain and recovery of depth, passion, and joy in the wake of tragedy. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes on your podcasting app. Our book club pick for August is How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi, and we will be discussing the book on August 31st with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. If you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. If you join, you get access to our virtual book club meetups, the Stacks very lively discord and our monthly bonus episodes. Our most recent episode of the Stacks bonus material called The Stacks Unabridged is with Tia Williams. She's the author of Seven Days in June. I freaking love her. She's so wonderful. We talk romance, snacks, and all sorts of stuff. So if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, or if you just want to show some love for your favorite Black woman-run indie podcast, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And thank you so much to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Shannon Martin and Kate Porigal. Thank you both so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack just for being wonderful humans. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Marissa Renee Lee. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. I am joined by Marissa Renee Lee, who is the author of Grief is Love. And if you've been listening to the show, especially in the last year, you know that I've kind of become obsessed with grief and talking about grief and like wanting to talk about grief. So it only feels right to have like the grief expert on. So Marissa, welcome to the stacks. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to dig into why you've been so obsessed with grief lately. Oh my gosh. Okay. We will get to that. I honestly can't even really articulate it, which has been frustrating because it's a thing I've been thinking about a lot, but I can't articulate like exactly what it is about grief that I've been obsessed with. Um, But before we get to that, we always sort of start here, which is in about 30 seconds. Can you tell us about Grief is Love? Yes. Uh, So Grief is Love is a book that I decided to write six months after my mom died uh, 14 years ago because I felt like I felt like the way that we describe grief and our expectations around grief are inaccurate. And I think that causes people more pain. And so my goal with writing Grief is Love is not only to tell my story of losing my mom and also a much wanted pregnancy that my husband and I lost, but also to share the latest and best research and data around grief is lost so people can experience grief however it lands for them without also carrying any judgment or self-shame. Wonderful. I really enjoyed the book. I think my listeners will know, but you may not. My dad passed away about 10 years ago. Um, So I thank you. Um, So I could, I sort of could relate to some of what you were talking about with your mother having passed, you know, 
10 plus years ago as well. Like it's, I felt like we were on a similar sort of place. Cause usually I feel like when I read books about grief, it's much more about like an immediate grief. Yes. And a lot of people don't talk about like, okay, like made it through a year, made it through five years. I just made it through 10 years. Like, when does this get easier? (laughs) You know, like it's so, it's like always like six months ago, you know, this horrible thing happened. And so like, I really appreciated that. But I'm wondering sort of how did you become the voice of the grieving, if you will, because like I lost a parent, you know, we're not alone in that. Like many people have experienced yeah. things that are grief. What was it about you where you decided like, I want to take this on. I want to be the voice of this for others. Yeah. So I will say for me, you know, a big trigger and kind of turning point in my story was when my husband and I lost that pregnancy in 2019. Mm. You know, at that point, my mom had been gone for over a decade. And if you would have asked me, you know, I would have said, yes, I've like moved on. I think I've gotten over it. I'm in a good place, et cetera, et cetera. And then when that loss happened, like it just rocked me Mm. and it hit so hard. And I'm sure you have these moments as well. Like there was just something about going through that experience that, you know, all I wanted was my mom. Yeah. And that experience for me served to show me that like, we don't ever actually get over these things. Mm. Like that shouldn't be the goal. It's more about what does it mean to live with your loss? And because our pregnancy loss happened in late 2019, like I suddenly found myself forced to grapple with all of these questions about you know, I've lost my mom, the loss of the pregnancy, how these things are connected, how they're not connected, et cetera, right. in the midst of a global pandemic right. when everybody was grieving something. And I think, I think that made me kind of more outspoken about my grief this time around. The other thing I realized, because I, I reflected a lot about, you know, what was different for me when I lost my mom versus when we lost this pregnancy. And when we lost the pregnancy, like I told everybody, like mm. anyone who would listen anyone who would even halfway care. Like I felt like I couldn't just hide all Mm -hmm. of this pain that I was experiencing. You know, it was enough to be processing the loss, to be processing the grief connected to my mom, to be dealing with the physical consequences of like an underlying health condition that I have and the physical consequences of miscarriage. Like I was like, fuck this. Like Mm -hmm. I can't add another thing that's burdensome. And so I shared and I shared and I shared. And so many people came to me and said, oh my God, you know, you're so vulnerable. Like, I'm so proud of you for being vulnerable. Hmm. And that's when I realized that there is something about grief that so many of the other books that I had looked at and read didn't get to, which is this concept of safety. Mm. You know, by the time we lost our pregnancy, I was as established as one could be in America as a black woman, you know, like I have the gold plated resume. I have, you know, this wonderful marriage that thankfully I'm a part of. We own our own home. I'd started a few businesses. Like I'd done all of the things. And so I realized I didn't have to care as much about what other people thought about me sharing my grief. Right. And that's when it became more of a, oh, this can't just be about me. Like, yes, there's a lot of processing that I'm doing through sharing, but it's also, as you know, there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of people who look like us who even have a platform, like right. period. Right. There really aren't a lot of people who look like us who have a platform and an opportunity to share things in the space around like grief and mental health and healing. And so that's when for me it became, you know, not just about the fact that I came to all of these conclusions through this pregnancy loss, but also I'm a black woman who has realized and sort of started to figure out all of these things. And it became really important for me to share them. Okay. So you make the decision to sort of like take this on as something that you want to talk about and share about and use your platform. What sort of research, like what did you dive into Mm. to feel like confident that you could have these conversations? Because I mean, I read the book. I've heard you speak. Like, I know that you're a responsible person. And so like (laughs) what I know from you isn't like, you know, like some people are like, I'm going to be a grief influencer. Like my mom died and I lost a baby and now I can go talk about it to anybody who will listen. Yeah. So I'm curious, like how you took it on, like what, who you look to, what informed you, like how you how you found the confidence to actually like come out and write a book about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, I, I knew that the book, the book for me was something that like, I could like feel in my body, you know, like I knew that this book had to come out eventually. And I ended up writing an article about how we don't get over these things. Mother's Day weekend, 2020 that mm. appeared in glamour. And Ooh, that, that was a big weekend. Off. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a big weekend. That's it was like a, a crazy weekend. time to think about like, cause that was exactly. right before all of the George Floyd stuff would have happened. Exactly. But exactly. after Ahmaud Arbery, yeah. uh, like it was like sort of this yeah. like pre, anyway, I'm just like trying to remember. It was a weird moment. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to connect a couple dots. So like, okay. it was just a crazy time <laughs> in our country period. Right. And then for me personally, I realized like that was the first Mother's Day that I would have expected to celebrate. Like mm. if things had worked out the way that we wanted them to mm-hmm. in 2019. And then it was also the pandemic. And then there was this race stuff happening. And so the article goes somewhat viral. And then two weeks later, George Floyd happens. And suddenly people are frankly paying more attention to black people than yes. they had ever before in my life. I'm familiar. You know, I'm almost 40 I'm years old. Like that's like all of a sudden we were having this moment. And as a part of that moment, as I know you'll recall, yes. there was that whole viral hashtag publishing paid me oh, where yeah. we learned that some of our favorite, most amazing and impressive black writers like Roxanne Gay, for instance, got paid shit to write mm-hmm, their books. Mm-hmm. And so I had incoming from agents and this one agent, he reached out again and he was like, listen, like, I want you to make as much money as possible writing your first book. And right now, let's just be honest, like we're in a moment. We don't know how long this moment is going to last. Do you think you can put a book proposal together in six weeks? Which now knowing what I know about writing a book, like that was completely insane. And I probably shouldn't have said yes, but I'm me. So I said yes. Yes. And then (laughs) as I was, as I was getting deeper into actually starting to write the book, because we finished the proposal a few weeks later, had a contract with Hachette to write the book. You know, my husband said to me one day, what makes you a grief expert? Mm -hmm. Like, why should somebody buy your book versus someone else's? And I had been going through this like internal process. How do I make sure that this book is as useful to other people as possible? And I realized when he asked me that question that if I could partner with a researcher and like ground the book in the leading research and data around grief and loss and healing and race as well. Like, wouldn't that make it so much more compelling? And like, cause then people are not just trying to figure out if they can relate to me and my story, which fundamentally isn't that unique, like not, and not saying anything bad on something like we all lose parents. Like you've done, like these things just, it just happens. It's just life. And so when he asked that question, I decided that this book was going to be research and evidence-based And so every anecdote, every story, piece of advice, recommendation, et cetera, it is grounded in research. I ended up working with this amazing woman who is a professor and bereavement expert at Harvard University. And she also, similar to us, like lost a parent at a young age. And she's gone through the same like IVF, pregnancy loss, infertility stuff that I had as well. So that was the thing for me that made me more confident in Mm the fact that like this was going to be a good book. Yeah. I want to talk about, I guess, so this is sort of my obsession with grief, I guess. It's like, I, I haven't been able to articulate yeah. it, but I think this is why I'm obsessed with it. Okay. Because I, when my dad passed away, I was 25. So I was pretty young. Okay. Not super same. young, we but yeah. like pretty young, you know? Yeah. And none of my friends had really lost a parent. And yep. a lot of people that I knew hadn't experienced any major form of like loss. Yeah. You know, maybe a yeah. grandparent, but yeah. even up until Not that point, yeah. we were also so I was younger. So like, at, you know, it just was different. Anyways, then the pandemic happens and everyone is like feeling all of these feelings. Right. They're, yeah. And they don't know what they are and they're feeling upset and they're feeling stressed out and they're feeling like this longing. And I'm like, oh, I think this is like collective grief. Like, I think we're yes. grieving the future. I think we're grieving the past. Like, yes, I think 100%. we're grieving possibility. And so then I became obsessed with this idea of like Americans grieving because I think we do it horribly. Like, I think we don't we know do. what we're doing. Yes. So I think Agreed. for me, I became obsessed with like wanting to hear other people who were grieving 
acutely as opposed to like this collective grief, what they were grieving. So like at the beginning of the year, Jason Reynolds came on and his father had recently passed away. So we talked about that a little bit on that episode. And like when people would sort of bring up grief, I would be like, can you like lean into that for me? (laughs) Like, I just am curious because my acute grief was like so long ago and it was in such a different time that now people who are like grieving now, I'm like, oh, I'm interested in this. So I think that's what it is. But I don't know. I'm just very curious about it. All of that being said, love it. why do you think that it's so hard for Americans to talk about and live in their grief, in the idea of grief and grieving? Yeah. And so what I'm about to say, I think, applies to the range of feelings and emotions that we experience as human beings that are judged as like not positive. So what I'm going to say, I think it can apply to anger, to, you know, deep sadness, um, you know, depression, disappointment, et cetera. Basically anything that I feel like we are generally encouraged to keep to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think our weirdness and discomfort that like we experience in this country around anything that isn't immediately quote positive is definitely just like everything else in America connected to two things, capitalism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Like fundamentally there isn't, there isn't a way to monetize or make grief and grieving like quote unquote productive. Mm -hmm. And you know, we are so committed to productivity in this country and, you know, what we are able to achieve and accomplish. And, you know, you know, from having experienced it at a relatively young age, like when you are deep in those like early months and even years of grief, like you're the exact opposite of the American ideal, right? Like, you know, you, you are expected to, in this country, if you are having a hard time with something, the expectation is that you like pull yourself up by your theoretical emotional bootstraps <laughs> and get yourself together and turn your lemons into lemonade as quickly as possible. And I think that that notion and that culture, it pushes us to deny parts of us that just make us human beings. Like we are not supposed to be happy, smiley, feel good after school, special people 24 seven. Like that's just not, that's not normal. It's not reasonable. It's really weird when you think about it. And then you go back a further layer and you think about how we are taught to cope and deal with various forms of hardship and challenges in life. And everything is rooted in a culture that was fundamentally created mostly by a handful of old white men. Yeah. And so I think when we are able to be honest about how this country's culture around, you know, just about everything has developed and what it's rooted in and constantly ask ourselves these questions of like, you know, why are we doing this? Why do we think this? I think it opens up possibilities for us to do things differently. Like when you think about even just, and this is still sort of a more Western culture, but like the Jewish culture, like there are more methods around, you know, what happens when someone dies and, and, you know, mourning and celebration and things like that than anything that we've ever really been given access to. I think broadly speaking in American culture, even just like black culture, you know, when you pour one out for your homie, like there are other ways of doing things and of celebrating and maintaining connections to the people that we've lost, but we just, We just want to be out of these feelings that hurt and are uncomfortable and are painful, but the only way out is through. And I think somewhere along the way, like that's just been lost in our culture. Yeah. I want to just say one thing because I don't want people to get mad at me. Um, I recognize, no, I recognize that like when I say like as Americans, it's really broad and like there are people in America who can grieve and like different cultures and subsets of Americans. I'm speaking much more broadly. And I also want to say that I recognize that other places like Canada or Great Britain or whatever might also have the same issues that we have. Um, I just don't live there and I don't know culturally how grieving is done there. So I sort of just want to say like, that's like a very generalization, which I know that you know, but you know, I don't want people to be like, we don't grieve good in Canada either. Like, okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Okay. So here's something that 
me I thought of, and I'm curious to hear you kind of expound on this. So obviously the title of the book is Grief is Love. And you talk about how like grief is basically love with like nowhere to go or like an, a, a, a love that is sort of like un, unfulfilled in a sense because yes. the other person who you are grieving is not able to like reciprocate your love in the way that they once could or vice versa. Yep. So I'm wondering if Americans, air quotes, including those who, it, <laughs> those who it's applicable to, do you think that part of grief, the difficulty with grieving is that in America, we also really struggle to accept and and practice like safe, consensual adult forms of love, like because there's so much toxicity mm. around like love bombing and like people who say they love you, but they're abusive oh, and like all these different forms of love that we also don't really like we're not taught like you know so much of love is this like hallmark version of a thing that maybe yeah. isn't what it is and like we tell our kids we love them and then we spank them you know yeah, so I'm like wondering yeah. if maybe yeah. some of the issue has to do with the grief is love but the love wasn't always really love and so you're parsing out yeah. and we don't know how to feel it because we don't know what you know it's like I think here's what I think. I hadn't thought about that before, but what I will say is I think all of these things are connected because at the end of the day, what it's about and like what the book is about fundamentally is like healing, yeah. like living with loss requires you to pretty constantly actively be healing yourself and aware of your feelings and emotions because things are different now that your person is gone. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that also requires people, you know, th things may be different, but maybe they weren't totally good or totally right to begin with. So like all of it is connected to healing, I think, and whether it's healing relationships or things that, you know, might not be good between you and someone else when they're alive or after they're gone. So like, yes, I do think all of that is, is connected and is tied to a culture that generally speaking is averse to discomfort, mm -hmm. you know, unless it is the kind of discomfort that is in the pursuit of some form of accomplishment. Right. You know, like we're okay with working yourself to death here. Yeah. yeah. We are less okay with you just, being with difficult or challenging emotions and trying to quietly sort through them. Yeah. Yeah. I just think so much about like social media and like performance and like, yeah. I think oh about, God, like the girl. performance of love on social media and yeah. things. And then I think about like the way that if that's what we are taught that love is, then if grief is love and people don't even know what love is, then that it's like, gonna get all yeah, it's going to be yeah. all fucked up. hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, no, I mean, you, obviously, you know this even better than I do, I'm sure. But the way so many things are portrayed on social media <laughs> is like inevitably leaving us all more fucked up. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's why I just post really beautiful books. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so we've talked about grief. We've talked about love. I want to talk about, of course, the intersection because you've mentioned it. You, you know, sort of are focusing your energy not just on grief, but on, you know, black grief and, and in some ways grief from other people of other people of color, other groups, yep. but you know, you're, you're a black woman. You're focused on blackness. I, I would say based on what I've read and seen, <laughs> why do you think that grieving is harder for black people and people of color and other marginalized groups? So here's why. And it's not even that the grieving itself is harder. What I should have written is that healing is harder. Mm -hmm. And I believe that because going back to the piece on safety. So first of all, if you are not safe, and I'm talking psychological safety, physical safety, social safety, you know, economic safety, et cetera, if you are not safe, how are you going to give yourself like permission to fall apart a bit and grieve? Like, where is your support going mm -hmm. to come from if you're not, if you're not even in a position to, to stop and like be safe, just being present with your feelings because you're in survival mode because you're not safe. So like, just to give some specific examples, because I feel like it sounds abstract without them. There was this image that circulated a couple months ago now. Uh, it was when mothers in Ukraine 
were writing contact information and blood types and names, et cetera, on their children's backs in permanent marker, like as they were fleeing a war zone. Like those people can't grieve. Like they don't, they don't have time. They don't have safety. Like they're just trying to stay alive. Or, you know, I think about LGBTQ parents in places like Texas and Florida where, you know, just their kids just being themselves is under attack right now. Mm -hmm. You know, like those parents don't have the space to grieve and to let themselves fall apart because they're just trying to keep their kids safe. And so, like, I think that is a big part that like lack of safety is a big part that makes grieving harder for people of color, you know, poor people, um, indigenous folks, LGBTQ folks, et cetera, in this country because of the way they've already been made vulnerable by society. And then the second thing that I think is really important to consider is, you know, when you think about what it looks like and what is required to live a full and joyful life after experiencing a life-changing loss of any kind, they are things that are harder to access if you don't have the right resources. Mm -hmm. And we know that because of systemic racism and just the gross inequality in this country, that most of the people who don't have the resources that healing requires are also the people that need them the most, unfortunately. And I think because of that disconnect, and and what I'm talking about, you know, access to physical health resources, access to mental health resources, and, you know, insurance coverage to access either of those things, paid time off from work, paid childcare so that you can just, you know, take a break and fall apart without your kids in your face, you know, all even just, just time to be able to do something like go on a vacation to a place where, you know, your father loved to visit, like all of these things that help us be okay with our loss are a lot harder to access if you are a person of color in this country because of what it generally means to be a person of color in this country. And I just felt like because so much of the grief space is dominated by white voices, like that was something that I thought was really important to raise. And, you know, when I think about privilege and the privilege that grieving and healing requires. And I I feel this way whenever I talk about privilege, I don't raise it so that those of us who have the privilege feel guilty about it. I raise it so that we can all be aware of it and do the work, you know, in our communities, at our companies, in our families, et cetera, to ensure that healing is not a privilege. Yeah. I mean, I think about the summer of 2020 and like the Black Lives Matter marches and all of, you know, the stuff around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and like that kind of collective, again, grief that I think a lot of Black people were feeling. And also the fact that like the same Black people were in the streets, like literally not safe because of the police. And like that, that's what came up for me when I was reading the book. And like, it also made me grieve this like relationship with America Oh, I think about that all the time. Because like, I don't know, I was always taught like, love America, we're the best. And like, I just don't. I just don't. Like, I think America has like got a lot of issues. And like, I'm, I'm glad that I live here. But I don't necessarily I've never lived anywhere else. So I don't know if it's any better, you know, like, and I think about how, like, there's also grief, like you can grieve a love that isn't there. That's exactly what I was gonna say. So like my relationship with America, how I've come to you know, reconcile it for myself these last few years, especially is I experience grief because I am an American. Being an American is all that I've ever known. Like you, I was raised to be proud of this country and it it is, it is mine for better or worse. And at the same time, it doesn't treat me like we are, like we belong to each other. Right. You know, like I, like, I feel grief every time another ridiculous thing happens in our communities that we've come to normalize. You know, like I think about how shitty I felt after Buffalo. Right. Like we're not even talking about it anymore. Right. It's like it doesn't even matter. Right. And you know there will be more instances like Buffalo Mm -hmm. before anything changes, if it ever does. And for me, like the, the grief that I feel around being an American, like 
it is the pain of unrequited love. Yeah. Like I am an American. Theoretically, I love my country. I want to love my country. I want to be proud of my country. And I don't feel like I can have any of those things right now. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's hard. So hard. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. And I feel like if I didn't ask you this, there'd be like millions of people. And by millions, I mean like the five people who listen to the show who would be <laughs> like, what the fuck? But I also have a feeling that I know what you're going to say. So I'm asking this for <laughs> other people. But if you feel like this is a bad question, you just go right ahead. Oh, stop. It's, it's a question that I get a lot. And I do think about it a lot. But I also feel like I know the answer, which is how... Do you recommend that people reach out to people who are grieving in their lives? So that is a question that I get in every interview. And I think it is a really important question. But the answer is uh, not good. The answer is not helpful, I feel like, right? Well, I'm going to tell you what <laughs> my answer is. I can't wait to what you say, but I feel yeah, like I've Because I've I feel very that. strongly about okay. my answer. So Great. here's my thing. Great. First thing I want to say is I think people get way too hung up on saying the right thing to people who are grieving. Yeah. And I get it. And and what my advice is like, don't give anybody any platitudes. Don't tell anybody that their person is with the angels now or, you know, whatever. Nobody wants to hear that. So let's just like put a pin in that. But fundamentally, I will tell you, and I don't know if this is the same for you, Tracy. Like I, I don't remember any of the stupid or insensitive or just, you know, platitude type things that people said to me when my mom died. What I do remember though, are the people who I expected to show up and didn't. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. my thing with, you know, how to approach someone who's grieving or who, you know, you think might be grieving, focus less on what you say and more on what you do. And that can be you know, dropping off a meal, even if it's months or a year or two after someone has passed away. It can be going over to their house to take their dog for a walk so that they can just, you know, take a break and go cry in the shower or whatever. It can be sending them a note when you know it's the day of their dead mom's birthday and they're probably thinking of her. It can be sharing a memory of the person who died if you also knew the person. You know, we don't we don't get to hear people talk about our people very often. And like, that's that's sad. 
you can also send a gift. Like I will tell you, I have received mm-hmm. some of the best grief gifts, like everything mm-hmm. from the day that we found out of our pregnancy loss, like my childhood best friend did like an Instacart or something of some of my favorite, like shitty snacks, you know, like Doritos and fruit snacks and Oreos type deal. Um, another girlfriend sent a gourmet box of cheese and snacks from this cheese shop that we're both obsessed with in New York. You know, like, like people will remember the things that you did to both practically support them and to remind them of like who they are. Yeah. So focus on those things more than what you say, because nothing you say is going to really make them feel better if their spouse, child, parent, et cetera, just died. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's the answer always is like to do something. But I also feel like for me, in my experience, I remember one email that I got that I thought was so good. And it was someone else who'd lost their dad and an older person, like a like a parent's family friend kind of person. Yeah. And they were like, this is shitty. And it's going to be shitty. And I'm sorry that you're dealing with this, but it's going to suck for a while. And, you know, and it was like something like that. And it was kind of funny. And like, you know, it was a few it was like a few paragraphs. It was nice. And there was more in it. But what I remember was like, like, sorry, this sucks. This is the worst. I've been there. I'm sorry. And like, that's one of the things I try to do, especially when someone I know, like loses a dad specifically. Yeah, I feel like I can come in and be like, hey, I'm sorry, this sucks. But the other thing that I think, which is what I try to do, especially when I know the person, like when I feel close to the person, because when I don't feel close to the person, I sort of just say, you know, I I either don't say anything because it's like I'm seeing it on social media and it feels weird, you know? And like, to me, that always annoyed me when people that I like didn't really know would like send. Oh, really? Like, like, you know, old friends from high school you haven't talked to in five years and like send a message. Like, I always hated that. But I also hate that for my birthday. Like, I just, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know you anymore. Like, you just see my pictures. Feels insincere. Yeah, I get that. But like for people that I do know, I feel like one of the things that's really helpful is like really specific offers of help, like you're saying, like, hey, I'm going to come by today and walk the dog. Not, hey, do you need anything? Because if you ask me if I need anything, a thousand percent of the time I'm saying no, because like, I don't, I can't, I do need things, but I can't think of it. I'm sad. Like, yeah, you're too, your brain is too overwhelmed. So it's not even just the offer, the way you said it, like as a declarative statement. What time is best for me to come over to walk the dog? Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. And yeah, the what other, time do you guys want dinner dropped off? Exactly. Like, that, like, yes, 100%. I feel like also a thing that's helpful for people who are like nervous around grief and want to be helpful is to actually think about what you're offering in the same way that you would if someone had a newborn child. Mm, right? I love like, that. You would think, it makes it so much easier. Yeah, like yeah. they're in a place that's really difficult. It's very fresh. They don't know what they're doing. They're feeling a lot of feelings. I love that. How can you be helpful as opposed to this is so sad and I don't want to be near grief. Just think of it like, yeah. oh, if I had a new baby, you'd come over and do my laundry. Or if yes, I had a new baby, yes. you'd order Instacart. Or if yes, I had or a new drop baby. drop off the casserole. Yeah, yes. whatever that looks oh, like for that. you. Okay. Um, I feel like that's like a helpful way to reframe it if you're a person who feels like weird about about grief. No, that's great. I love that. I love that. And then that. I always love when people remember the anniversary of my dad's passing. Same. That text message, Same. my best friend does it every year. It's real, she's, it snails it every year. It's everything. Um, it's everything. And it's always like, and I miss, and I miss your dad, you know? I just, yeah. It's just like a nice yeah. little thing. And I try to do that for my, for my very close friends. But those are a few things that have, that I think are helpful. But again, it's like so specific to the person. Cause I think the other question you probably get a lot is like, what's the best way to grieve? And like, that is so personal. Yeah, no, I can't. Yeah. I can't tell yeah. you. That. Um, and I tried to be really clear that, you know, my goal with grief is love is to give people a compass yeah. and like a framework for things to think about that may come up along the way. Yeah. And then examples for how I dealt with them either well or poorly, Yeah, just to have like sort of a loose bit of a guide, but it's different for everybody. And even the folks who are doing research on how grief impacts the body and the brain. Mm. Like some of that is similar for all of us, but not always. So I think just, just know that no two experiences are the same and be okay with accessing whatever it is you need to be okay today. Yeah. And like one of the things you say in the book is 
grant yourself like permission and also to ask for help. And I think like one of my biggest regrets when I was like deeply grieving as opposed to just like generally now where I am, where I like sometimes (laughs) grieve, um, was that I didn't ask for the things that I knew that I wanted or needed because I didn't like it's want, hard. it's so hard. But and you, we were both young you're when it young. happened. Because I feel the same yeah. way. Like we were both 25 when we lost parents. Yeah. Like, but I think people even like as they get older feel that way too. You know, it's like, it's hard to ask for that help. And I think it was helpful to read in the book, like you encouraging people to give themselves permission to ask yes. for the things that they need. Because like, I, I mean, I think about this a lot, even just like with professional stuff. If you don't ask, you know, you get 0% of the things you don't ask for yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So like if you 100%. don't, ask, if you ask and someone says no, which they probably won't, but if they do, you're yeah. in the exact same place that you were five minutes before you asked. Yes. So it's yes. like, you're not really losing anything. And if they say yes, you've got that help. I love that uh, way to think about it. The other kind of reframe that I've done in my brain, because it's taken me it took me a while to really get comfortable asking for help with the personal things. Mm-hmm. Career-wise, you know, even when I was a kid in high school, like I would ask anybody for anything because that's just how ridiculously ambitious I've always been. Right. Um, <laughs> but on a personal level, what I think about is how I feel when a friend needs something yes. and they ask me and I'm like able to help them. Like I feel really good about that. Like I feel good about myself when that happens. And so why not give someone else the opportunity to help you with something? Yeah, that's so true. It's such a good feeling. Okay. There's so many things in this book I want to talk. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, I'm skipping a few things. I want to talk about legacy because okay. that's sort of, is it the second to last or the last chapter? Second to last. Uh, second to last. Because the last second one last. is love. Yeah, you nailed it. Um, yeah. The second to last <laughs> chapter in the book is about legacy. And I'd love for you to sort of tell people why you think we're thinking about legacy wrong or, or in a not complete way or a not, not as interesting way filled with possibility. (laughs) Yeah, no. So for me, I had to go back in time and think about how I have redefined legacy over the almost 15 years since my mom has been gone. And I think some of it was like, as much as this book means to me, like by far it is the thing that I'm most proud of that I've ever done professionally. Like I, I didn't want to get caught up and I could feel myself as I was like finishing it up and starting to work on the sales and marketing process, which is a whole other thing. I didn't want to conflate my mother's legacy with like this thing Mm. that was going to be out in the world. And so I took a step back and I started asking myself, you know, like how, how do I define what it means to like sort of live in honor of someone and to live a life that is connected to the legacy of someone else's life? And I realized that fundamentally all of us, like we want to have made an impact on the world, right? On the people we love and care about, like we want to live on in some way. And I should also add my husband and I very quickly and unexpectedly adopted a newborn as the last chapters were being written. And so I was also thinking about this a lot from like the beginning of life perspective and, you know, being a new parent. And I realized fundamentally, like the thing that my mom is most proud of and the way that I can best embody her legacy is by continuing to live my life with the values that she instilled in me. You know, I realized the legacy piece is deeply internal for all of us Mm. because what it means to you to be your father's legacy, like that's different from what it means to me to be my mother's legacy. And it may even be different from, you know, how the rest of your family members see like their legacy and connection to your dad. And that's because all of our relationships are different and unique. Mm -hmm. So me living my mom's legacy is different from my sister, different from my father, et cetera. And I wanted to get people away from especially because when I was finishing the book, it was still the pandemic. I wanted to get people away from attaching themselves too much to things like the funeral or, you know, trying to start an organization or give away an award or, you know, doing those kinds of things in honor of someone, because so many of those things were taken away from us during that period of time. And so I wanted to come up with a way to define legacy that was really internal because that's where I think, that's where I think it actually lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Because I feel like legacy sounds like it has to be a thing. A thing, right? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, the funny, I mean, maybe because I was young, I never even really thought about that. <laughs> I still don't <laughs> really okay think too. about it. I don't know. My dad wasn't into that but kind when of you, stuff. <laughs> but when you think about your dad, like what are no, some I think of the things? About, I, so I yeah. think about like my dad's memory and like what I want to pass forward that he did yes. and like all those things. But I never thought about it in terms of legacy. Like I was never like, we're going to yeah. start a foundation. Like I just never, yeah. for whatever reason, I think because maybe I was young and, and I'm the younger sibling and my brother's like oh, okay. really got his shit together. And like <laughs> my mom really has her shit together. So I think I was just like, I'm sad. I'm 25. Yeah. Like okay, I just, you know, okay, like okay. I think it was just like a different. Very different family yeah. goals. <laughs> yeah, different than your family. Um, And so, yeah, like I think, of course I think about like, my dad and what I want to pass forward of his, what I yeah. learned from him, all of those things, certainly. And like, he's, and to me, that is his legacy. Yeah. Like that, that is what really matters because yeah. like, and again, I had the privilege of having the like new parent context to think through, you know, yeah. like, what do I want to give this child? Like what really matters most? And for me, you know, it's, it's really about putting another human being on this planet who is, you know, kind and compassionate and courageous and, you know, just a good person who loves life. So then I started thinking about my mom's values and how I live them. And that's how I came up with this whole, um, this whole legacy piece. Yeah. I love, I loved it. I've skipped over so many things that I wanted to talk about in the book. So people please go and get the book. Like there's some really great stuff about forgiveness and grace that I didn't get to that I think is really powerful. There's some really interesting stuff about shared grief, like with the people in your family yeah. who experience loss differently. Another part that I really love that I didn't have time to get to. So we basically like scrape the surface here today, but I have other things I want to talk to you about your process and stuff. So I want to make sure we get to that. Um, one is what's not in this book that you wish was in the book. That's an easy one. Actually, the last weekend that my editor was sitting with the book and we were trying to figure out if it was done, done, or if it needed anything else, something that I realized was missing is this idea of hope mm. and how, like sort of, how do you get back to being a hopeful person mm. after experiencing, in my case, like multiple devastating losses? Right. And so I think, and I may get in trouble for saying this in an interview, <laughs> but I'm, I'm basically positive my next book is going to be about hope. Got it. Um, because I think there's a lot that is misunderstood about hope, um, you know, like just it being this like light, cheerful, mm -hmm. happy-go-lucky mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's much deeper than that. Yeah. I mean, it's like a practice. Exactly. It's, it's a discipline. Like that's like my whole thing. Like, and what does that mean? And how do we embody that? And yeah, I have, yeah, I think the next book is going to be about hope. Great. I love that. <laughs> um, okay. You are like... Miss Career Woman, you have a resume that is like insanely fantastic. I know that you did not have your son when you were writing the book yet. You had not had him yet, but now you do. So yes. go re rewind pre-infant time, pre-baby. Yes. Oh how did you make time to write this book with all that you do and have going on? And then how did you actually write question. it? Where were you? How many hours a day? Music or no? I heard that you like gross, like, like bad for you snacks. So I'd love for you to talk yeah. about are there any snacks involved. Oh my God. Go so it. many snacks. Uh, so many yes. snacks. I can't um, wait. <laughs> so my process, I tried to attack this the way I would attack any other work project by being super structured and, you know, saying, okay, every other day I'm going to write for this many hours and like, then I'm going to edit and like, this is how I'm going to do it and whatever. But it did not actually work out that way because one of, so a couple of things have. So first of all, as a part of writing this book, and I didn't realize how much of this I had to do, like there was a lot of healing and inner work and therapy and crying and all of that stuff that had to go down in order for me to process or in some cases like reprocess things and then write them in such a way that they're actually useful for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So trying to write like that, like sometimes multiple days in a row or even every other day with all of that emotion, like it just was not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so finally, at one point I realized like that you can't, you, you can't 
treat writing the way you treat every other work project, Marissa. Right. Right. And so I sent myself an email that I marked unread in my inbox so I would always see it. And the subject line was just writing requires restoration. So I started taking more breaks and doing a better job taking care of myself and really, really being honest about whether or not when I woke up that morning, I could write that day, mm. you know, uh, which was hard. I will also share, this is completely ridiculous, <laughs> but um, since I'm an honest person, I wrote, I would say a majority, I think definitely more than half of Grief is Love in the notes section on my iPhone. Wow. Um, because up until that point, I'd only ever written articles. And I'm the kind of person who will like get really upset about something that's happening in the world and I either can't go to sleep or I wake up super early in the morning because I'm fired up and I'll just on my phone, a draft article, oh edit it once or twice, and then it goes out. That's like, that's literally my process for how I write the pieces for Vogue, for instance. And so I did that with most of the book because that's just how I feel most comfortable. Um, I have a thumb that is still sore from me doing that. <laughs> and I'm told I will probably have arthritis in one or both of my hands no. like, sooner than I care to admit. So um, I'm not suggesting that you write any books on iPhones. The thing, one of the things that was really crazy about this process is in addition to having a shorter timeline than most books and like never having written a book before, I turned in my manuscript uh, at the end of May of last year. And, you know, the book was coming out less than a year later. So it was supposed to be quick edits, final submitted in August. And I was proud of what I turned in, but it didn't feel quite right. Mm. And my editor felt the same way, but like neither of us were really sure exactly what to do. So July of last year, right around this time, like a couple weeks ago, I guess it would have been, I went on a day long silent retreat. And while I was at this like beautiful space, completely disconnected from electronics and email and everything else, I had this realization that I had written the wrong book, um, that I wrote a book about grief, but what I actually needed to write was a book about healing. And so I ended up having to scrap at least half, maybe more than half oh of what gosh. I had originally written. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And started over <laughs> um, late July last year with the plan for me to complete that entire rewrite in the span of a uh, little under two months. Wow. And then in, oh, wait, it gets better. And then in the middle of that is when Bennett showed up. <sighs> so I suddenly became a mom to a newborn with my book, probably about like 60% done. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and it was the first book out under their new imprint. So it was like, I like needed to make a decision on whether or not it was going to get done on time, because if not, it was going to shift everybody else's schedule. Right. Um, oh and I was like, you know what? I think it's going to be fine. And I don't know why I believed that. Like, I was so tired. I was so overwhelmed. I That's was also that hope like, practice. oh, my God, I was <laughs> grieving my mom. You know, of course, I wanted her there to, like, help me with this kid, like the whole thing. And like, so I was like, no, I think it's going to be OK. I think it's going to be OK. And it ultimately ended up being okay, but I didn't turn it in until late October, um, but we got it done. And he's definitely, his energy and everything I learned from his sudden arrival are definitely a part of uh, the last half of the book. That's incredible. I do have to backtrack. <laughs> you have not mentioned a single snack or beverage in your writing process, and I oh need God. to know. Okay, okay, okay. So <laughs> snacks, um, uh, Cheez-Its and fruit snacks, Ugh. specifically Welch's, like yes. mixed berry, yes. I think they're yes. called fruit snacks. Yes. Yeah, um, those are always a part of the routine. So I did a lot of baking. Like, I'm very grateful that it didn't lead to a lot of weight gain, okay. but um, – <laughs> During book writing, I perfected my brownie recipe. Okay. I made my chocolate chip cookies a bunch. Um, and then one of the things that I had been doing for both my mom's birthday and my husband's birthday is trying to perfect a yellow cake with homemade chocolate, buttercream frosting, and, you okay. know, rainbow sprinkles. We perfected that cake recipe during this period. Okay, please share, um, please share, please share with so me. So, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> oh, I, I will find it and share it with you. It's it's really good and not that hard. Okay, um, so, yeah, it was a lot of baking, salty snacks. There was a lot of, like, oh, I'm planning to cook dinner tonight. And then all of a sudden I realized I had this idea and I need to write. So we're getting Mexican tonight. Yeah. Um, and bourbon. Like, okay. that is my drink of choice. 
Uh, it definitely helped with some of those evening writing and editing <laughs> sessions. I love it. Okay. You are a very accomplished person, so this will not take away from this, but what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh my God. Um, gosh, I feel like there are tons. I can't think of one off. You know what, what, what word I kept messing up that's in the book, both spelling it and recording the audible, um, metabolomic. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's like a type, it's a category of like health disorders okay. that are often directly connected to stress and trauma. Okay. So it was like important both from like my own health and things that I've learned. And it's specifically a couple of places in the book. And I want to say metabolic because like, that's a word that we actually know yeah. and hear right yeah, yeah, yeah. Metabolomic. I was like, that's made up. Like, <laughs> did I make up that word? Um, but I didn't. So that, that was one that just, yeah, it was really, it was a real sneaky one. Your book has been everywhere. I feel like, I feel like I've seen it everywhere. Thank I feel you. like you've, you know, done a lot of incredible media. Who's the coolest person that you've heard from that's expressed interest in the book? You mean besides you? Yeah, definitely besides me because <laughs> I know some other people and they're way cooler than me. So I'm going to go ahead and say besides um, me. Who is the coolest person that's expressed interest? I have really appreciated getting to work with Deborah Roberts. She is the person who interviewed me for Good Morning America. And the crazy thing that happened in this case was, but the interview aired at the end of June and I want to say two days later, maybe three days later, she lost her sister. Oh my and gosh. so, yeah. And so I've heard from her since, and we actually ended up doing an IG live that some of the family members joined Ooh. because she told them all about the book. Yeah. So it was just, it was cry. both interesting. <laughs> yeah. And like, she was just an amazing and to have, you know, a black woman who's like so accomplished, be excited about your work and want to help elevate it and share it. Like, it's just, yeah, it's just really helpful um, and means a lot to me as a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to ask specifically because I know that you know this person. Do you know uh -uh. if Barack Obama has read your book? I don't know if he's read it. It was sent. Um, I did make every effort to get on his summer reading list. I was not on it, as you know. Um, but I know, I know it's been, I know it's been sent to him. I don't know if he's read it. Okay. I just was very curious. I'll do what I can to find out. Yeah. Well, tell him to come on the stacks. Let me know. I'm available. And Michelle, her I book's coming. I'm available. Um, I love it. Wait, another thing I just thought of for people yeah. who are grieving, I just want to, this was a thing that was also really interesting for me. And I don't, I wonder if you had this too with your mother, not with your pregnancy loss. Um, but when my, my dad, you know, was my dad for 25 years, but he was 76 when he passed away. So he had a lot of life that he lived that I wasn't yeah. part of. And when he passed away, like that first week when everyone was coming by and we had the funeral and everything, I found so much solace in like just sitting in the rooms with his friends talking about him. Totally. And like 100%. I felt so sad when people would come to the house and they looked sad because I was like, wow, I lost my dad, but you lost your best friend of 75 years. Yeah. And so I, a piece of advice I often give to people is like, I know it's really hard, but in the next few days, like try to just stay as open as you can to like being around your loved ones because like you're going to like yeah, gain it's things. It's so hard. Yeah, it's super hard. It's so hard. I mean, I think I just was like lucky to be in that mind space yeah. at that time, but I do try to encourage people. I'm like, if it's, if you're able, like try to try to be present um, in that first week yeah. with your yeah. loved ones. And I, I agree a thousand percent and I am agreeing from a space of like, I did not do that yeah. very much. <laughs> like I needed to focus on the things that I could control, yeah. you know, like I was all about like the funeral the planning funeral. and the logistics and doing everything exactly the way I thought my mom would have wanted me to. And I wasn't able to just be present with all of these other people who were around, who loved her and, you know, experienced her in a different way. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, it's just like one of those it's things hard. that I, I had, it never had occurred to me until I saw the faces of like some of my dad's best friends that like other like, people oh, were also yeah. grieving him Yeah, in uh, like, you know, I, again, I was 25 and it was my the dad. Child relationship yeah, exactly. is inherently selfish. Exactly. Like <laughs> and so I was like, oh my God, I think you're more sad than me. And like, yeah. that's incredible that we're both so sad together. I know. No, like it's, it's a real. very, like it's you're real. not alone feeling if you're able yes. to like sort of feel it. Anyways. No, I agree. 
I agree hundred percent. Last question. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Um, Ellie Wiesel. Mm. I love, I love the book night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just made such an impact on me as a super young person. I read it when I was like 14 or 15 years old. And I was like, Oh, one day I would love to like meet this guy. Mm. And I would just be curious with all of the experience that he had with loss and the Holocaust. And, you know, like if these things feel relevant, um, yeah, that's a great answer. All right, everybody. This has been Marissa Renee Lee. She's the author of Grief is Love. You can get the book wherever you get your books. It is out in the world. I listened to some of the audio. Also fantastic. Read by Marissa. So that's (laughs) an option for you too. Marissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. This was so fun. This was so fun. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, everybody, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Marissa Renee Lee for joining us. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to the wonderful Jackson Musker and Thuraya Masri for helping us make this interview possible. Don't forget, our book club pick for August is How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi, which we'll be talking about on August 31st with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 